0: Turning this evening to the book of Ezra, chapter 9, and verse 1. Ezra, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel, and the priests, and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And our subject is a revival of repentance. It's soon after 458 BC, the second return of Israelites from Babylon To Jerusalem has just taken place, a four-month journey, a thousand-mile journey, not as the crow flies, but the route that the people were compelled to take. The first return consisted of some 42,000 plus people, that was 80 years previously, and now there are altogether about 8,000, and here they are in Judah, in Jerusalem. They're led by Ezra, who is appointed by the king of the Medo-Persian Empire to be the governor for the time being of Jerusalem and Judah. It's been an astonishing series of provisions from the Lord that has led to this and here they are. Now they're settled and some of the one presumes more earnest princes among the people, because many of the princes were guilty of what is going to be described, but some of the more earnest ones dropped this great bombshell that there has been a great swerving away from the standards which the people should have followed. And here it is in the second verse. For they have taken of their daughters, and we see that uh, in verse 1 preceding this, that they've not separated themselves from the people of the lands. And yet, very curiously, it's not the people of the lands who are described in verse 1. It's the ancient Canaanite enemies of the people. And so there's the Hittites, the Perizzites and so on mentioned. Well, it's likely that uh, representatives of these different uh, peoples uh, were present so many years later in the uh, regions around uh, Jerusalem, even now. But... uh, that can't be why these names are mentioned why doesn't Ezra he's so good at making accurate lists keeping accounts naming the heads of families and so on why doesn't he name the nations around he says they have not separated themselves from the people of the lands then he mentions the ancient Canaanites But that would have made great impact upon his hearers when he came to rehearse these things and uh, charge the people because these are the people, this uh, naming them takes the mind of Ezra and all the people in due course back to the time of Moses and the giving of the law. He's going to be talking about The law of Moses that has been not just broken, but shattered. He's going to use a very strong word for it. So the nations he names are not the literal neighbors, but the ancient neighbors. The sin is so bad, it's uh, directly against the commands of God concerning those ancient nations. So they've adopted the lifestyle of the Canaanites, so to speak, around them. And they've adopted their culture, they've adopted their idols. How long has it taken for them to do this? It's 80 years since the first return. Plenty of time for deterioration and decay and people have drifted way from the mark. Now they've forgotten the law of separation. They've forgotten even the cause of the punishment and their ever being in Babylon in captivity. They've forgotten. But here, principally in verse 2, they've intermarried. They've taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the Holy Seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. What is meant by Holy Seed? Well, obviously it's a reference to Israel, a people who are to be separate and sacred for the Lord, but the very term hints at the coming Messiah through this nation. Descended from this nation will be that descendant promised to Abraham and then promised to Moses, promised to all the patriarchs before Moses of course and repeatedly promised the great descendant who would come, who through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed and through whom the devil would be dealt with and sin would be dealt with the Holy Seed, they've forgotten their purpose. This nation has been set aside and trained to prepare for and to expect and in due course to recognize and to proclaim the Saviour of the world. And yet they've mingled with the Canaanites around them. And the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. Well, it's a terrible thing, which has happened. And now, in verse 3, When I heard this thing, Ezra recalls, I rent my garment and my mantle, plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard. These are all uh, parts of mourning, deep sorrow and mourning. And sat down, astonished, which is a word which really means deeply afraid as well as grieved and ashamed. What would God do now? Then in verse 4, were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Well, there's a very significant word, trembled, shook at the warnings of God, took the warnings of God seriously because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. That's interesting. Would it refer to the people having been carried away into Babylon? Or is it used in an entirely different sense, meaning that the people had been carried away by the influence of others into sin. That will certainly be true. Even smart people, clever people, independent-minded people can be amazingly easily led sometimes. And if the priests and the Levites and the princes fall, then the people will fall. They'll be carried away. If it becomes a general trend, everybody will follow it and have the same view and do the same things. And I sat astonished, fearful and embarrassed and grieved until the evening sacrifice. And verse 5, we're going through quite quickly. This is the shocking compromise. At the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness. And having rent my garments and my mantle, I fell upon my knees, spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, "I'd like just to pause there. all the reflection that Ezra engaged in before he went to prayer. Now there are such things as emergency prayers, and God is gracious where we go straight to our needs and we pray for something or a measure of deliverance or help in an emergency without forethought or preparation. And God in his kindness hears every such prayer. But we should be following Ezra and other godly men of the scriptures in normal, our normal approach to prayer He doesn't pray straight away. He reflects. He mourns. He thinks about the seriousness of this and the consequences. It concerns him. It means so much to him. And only after some time lamenting does he pray. Prayer needs preparation. I'm saddened sometimes when I see seasoned Christians pouring into the morning service in the back gallery, just in the nick of time, into the service. No preparation, no thinking, no reflection, no prior engagement with the Lord. That's so sad, you know. And others who are still coming in, after the second hymn. Well, you look here and you see great sincerity and earnestness and reflection before the first word of prayer. And that's the standard. That's how it ought to be. Well, to come to the prayer, verse 6, and said, Oh, my God, I am ashamed, afraid, is the Hebrew, and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head. We're drowning as a nation in iniquity, and our trespass is like a mountain grown up unto the heavens, obscuring all blessing from us. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers, have we been in a great trespass? Well, there was always idolatry. There was always imitation of the surrounding nations. Unto this day, it was the great sin of ancient Israel, also many of the people. And for our iniquities, have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands? And Ezra is so concerned about this. This was the whole cause of the captivity. What will become of us now? And you come down to verse 8. And look at all the littles in the verse. And now for a little space. Just a short time. Grace. Undeserved mercy and favour hath been shown, showed from the Lord our God, to give us a remnant. That's a little thing. Not the whole country, not the several millions, but the first return, a mere 42,000, and the second, another eight. A remnant to escape, and to give us a nail. That's a little thing. The Hebrew is something like a pin or a peg. Not a footing, not a stronghold. We're just a few people, a remnant. We've been given a very short time just to put a pin, a peg only, in this holy place that our God may lighten and you could add a little. That's the sense of the original. Cheer us a little. Give us a little hope or encouragement. And give us a little reviving in our bondage. A little liberty. A little patch of liberty for, the, for Israel. Only little blessings. But they're great blessings nevertheless. What's the argument here? Well, we've been entrusted for just a short time with a little remnant of people and a very small holding in Jerusalem and a little encouragement and just an element of a taste of real liberty and we have already smashed it into the ground. The first tokens of benefits and blessing and we've failed. That's the idea of the great string of littles. Verse 9, for we were bondmen, slaves, really. This is not about Egypt, this is about Babylon, underlings. They could run their small holdings and live in houses, but they were third-rate citizens and servants and slaves wherever possible. Yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia. Artaxerxes is the Persian emperor at this moment. To give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolations thereof, to give us a wall, some measure of security in Judah and in Jerusalem. But what now? Verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. And they're rehearsed. Ezra feels this so deeply. He brings it before the Lord in prayer. I acknowledge, Lord my God, he effectively says, all that you've commanded. Look at it in verse 11. The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from one end to the other the Hebrew says from mouth to mouth our translators feel that this is the sense and they're no doubt right from one end to the other but all the talk all the information has been in this land sinful and in favour of sin. Which applies today. Apply these words to the world. Child of God, you've been saved by grace out of the world and I send you for the time being back into the world to win the world. But be careful. The land unto which ye go to possess it To win souls, to pray for people, is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people of the lands. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Everything he does in the culture is to bring down souls. In the entertainment world, everything that's going on is to pollute, and you as a Christian, are going to adopt the culture of the world and live as indistinguishably from a worldling? What a sin that would be to renounce distinctiveness for Christ. Modesty, humility, cleanliness, avoidance of all that is designed to promote sex and drugs and Rebellion and all the rest of it. Verse 12, a specific. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons. No intermarriage, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever. That's spelled out in Leviticus 23. There there to be one. They're to be influenced, they're to be helped, but their peace in their godlessness or their wealth is not to be envied, not to be pursued. That ye may be strong, blessing is conditional, and eat the good of the land. It's expressed entirely in agricultural terms, but it encompasses all the blessings of the people of God. Nevertheless, verse 13, after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds, the punishment in captivity in Babylon, and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve, that a remnant should be brought back, and has given us such a deliverance as this that we have had, should we again break thy commandments and join in marriage with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us? Well, that's the picture. Why? Why had they abandoned the standards of the Lord and been carried away? Complacency, obviously, pride, they thought they first they could have a little of the culture of the nations around them and do things for themselves and their own enrichment and benefit. They'd stopped work when it wasn't altogether their fault. There were constant incursions by the nations around their enemies but all building work had stopped so idle hands. While everything was in abeyance standards went down. You can relate that to the scene today. In so many churches the uh, principle of the working church has been forgotten there's no encouragement to the people to get into Christian service the Sunday schools wane away and are closed, the visiting is not carried out people don't have avenues of Christian service so what happens, they feather their nests they're tempted to live for the world and for careers and homes and better this and better that and comforts, and everything else. You see the picture here. The temple foundation was laid, the building erected, the wall just about begun, and everything stops, and things immediately decay, and everything starts to go wrong. And they do pursue all the benefits and what are seen to be the blessings of the nation's around them. Today's compromise. What a dilution of Christian living we've seen. Another reason for decay and decline is the lack of exhortation or application of the scripture. Now, I'm not going to mention any names, but there was a man in the United States who was a very efficient lecturer of doctrine. And he did well at it, without doubt didn't get everything right, he was a Presbyterian, but nevertheless he was a good teacher. And he was on the uh, television a lot, and so on, and uh, uh, people thought very well of him. And I've heard many people say, oh, I listened to a video of so-and-so, and he's such a good teacher. And he died in recent years, but he had this great reputation. There was however a problem, the problem wasn't in his doctrine, except a few things, it wasn't his teaching or even his manner, but he never, never exalted and he never, never applied. And he started really the big reformed conferences in America. His own conference would go for years and years. It's very large, very popular, and thousands would gather. And they would gather in the comfort that all they'd hear was doctrine. If you drove to one of these splendid conferences in your top-of-the-line Cadillac, there wouldn't be a word of reproof for you. If you owned half a dozen homes or ranches and swimming pools and uh, 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 lived for uh, the good of this world and riches and self-aggrandizement, no one would ever lay a finger on you at such a conference. It was all doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And you'd come away having ticked all the boxes, patting yourself on the back and thinking, what a splendid fellow I am. And there are a number of quite famous celebrity preachers who are much the same. And people say, isn't it wonderful? You don't know quite what to say because there's a huge area of ministry excised out, entirely omitted. There's nothing practical. So is it surprising that Thousands of Christians get more and more worldly. More and more committed to expensive and luxurious things and uh, uh, appearances and entertainment and recreation and the golf course and all the rest of it. Because there's no exhortation, there's no no Christian life taught by so many of the preachers these days. You can see it here in the book of Ezra. Feathering your nest was everything. Haggai says so. He was the contemporary prophet trying to wake them up. Zechariah, the same. They're directly charged with these very things. And we see it today. So there's a great dilution of Christian living. And even where the word of God is truly taught. No application, no standard, no Christian service, no Christian life. And we've seen it in our day: less ministry, people attend fewer services. So-called Christians, many churches these days only have one church, one service on a Lord's day, and then the prayer meeting and the Bible study will be combined. So there's not much time either for prayer or for Bible study. Everything is reduced, diluted, cut down. And you put all these things together. And very often the preachers, even if they're sound, often are not preaching the gospel. They're not preaching soul-winning evangelistic sermons. Some say they don't believe in doing that. How they get to that position, I can't imagine. So the churches are not seeing conversions and are not being used. So everybody gets desperate. Oh dear, we'd better make a concession. We'd better adopt rock music in the services. We'd better adopt all the, the contemporary Christian worship movement. We'd better do this or that to attract people in and go for gimmicks. And there's something in human nature that likes new things like the Athenians, even the educated set, the philosophers, who the apostle Paul found, spent all their time seeking out some new thing to teach or to learn about. And that's happened in the churches. New things, so that must do something different. So so they introduced choirs and anthems And then that all gets a bit boring, so we'll have solos and instrumental pieces. And even that isn't enough, so we'll get the children in. Isn't that very sweet? And they will do little performances. And we'll have drama, we'll have this, and we'll have that. There's something new going on all the time. Something extravagant. I was reading about a church that has a a circus performance combined in the service and so on. But there's something in human beings that will fall for novelty. And we try to keep it out. You can see how all this happens. And after 80 years, Ezra comes in and the most diabolical point has been reached that will bring judgment upon them. And our business is to avoid this. I remember as a youngster, The first church I had membership in, when I was saved, and I was told by somebody how they called their pastor. And uh, it had been, a lot of the people in the church were good, sound people, and the officers of the church who taught the baptismal classes and all that sort of thing, uh, they were, uh, they Calvinists and well taught, and passed this on. But something had gone wrong. They'd called a minister who was evangelical, yes, but fearfully weak and gave way to all kinds of things, and the church would be going downhill quickly. And I was told as a youngster, well, we were warned. We had one member one elderly man who, when this minister was called, stood up and said, we cannot have this man for this reason, for this reason, for this reason. And he laid down all the points where the prospective new minister was completely unclear on biblical doctrine and on the way of conducting church life. But I was told the trouble was The people got very restless and angry with this man. And some would even hiss at him. Sit down, sit down, sit down. He's a nuisance. He's just an antibody. He's a nuisance. In the end, of course, they called the new man. And he was there for years. And he was a disaster, really, for what had been such a promising place. how things can fall and good people can be carried away. Deterioration can set in. And one of the things we learn from Ezra is to be on our guard, to be for the old ways, to be for the doctrines of the Bible, to be not only for doctrine but for application, gospel preaching. I've mentioned in particular the the working church principle the voluntary principle is important yes but as many as possible to be engaged for Christ in some way all these things and we learn it from from here so it's partly the failure of the preachers the failure of the seminaries letting in all sorts of people who they shouldn't have let in so that they end up in pulpits, people who are not soul winners, people who haven't left the world themselves. We had a brother here who, from overseas a few years ago, who went to a particular seminary in London to study, and he came to me and he said, oh, the culture is terrible it is so worldly, the entertainment that is liked and enjoyed, and the views and the ideas. The doctrine's fine, and everybody claims to believe in those doctrines, but the culture is terrible. What an awful state to get into. People who seem theoretically to uphold the right things but don't even begin to live the life. Spurgeon's first question to people who wished to join the pastor's college in his day was, have you won souls? The second question is, what was your experience of leaving the world when you were converted? And they were top of the list. But those questions wouldn't feature today. So it sounds very negative, but this is the kind of thing that we have to talk about, that we learn from this passage. Well, our time is getting short. Today's compromise. Why the failure of preachers and churches? We've mentioned no gospel preaching, no working church, so people get desperate and concessions are let in. In the 1990s, Most reformed churches in this country stood against contemporary Christian worship. During the course of the 1990s, that all changed. And one after another, they began to adopt it. From the 1960s, when the contemporary Christian worship movement started, right up to the 90s, 30 odd years. They resisted these things, argued against them. Then they gave in. Why? I've given you the reasons. We have to be on on guard and watch or we get carried away by all these things. Chapter 10, just the beginning. Now when Ezra had prayed... And when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. A weeping revival. Only the Spirit of God could bring it about. The people wept. And Shekhaniah, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God. This was the effective high priest. He wasn't one of the guilty ones. But now he repents on behalf of everybody and have taken strange wives of the people of the land Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. There is hope. What's the hope? If we make a covenant, a solemn pledge before God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them. Wouldn't that involve cruelty? Wouldn't that involve mass divorce? Well, I'll tell you how they did it is in, our cl- in our closing study of Ezra next week. But I'm not going to go into the how tonight, just the fact that they were ready to put the clock back. And the acting chief priest says to Ezra in verse 4, Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. You've got the power. You're the governor in the land. We also, the priesthood, or the pious ones, will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Strange sentiment, but very necessary. If you as the governor make this a a decree, a law, Well, there could be terrible reaction. But Ezra has the courage before God. Verse 5, then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word. And we'll look in due course at exactly how they went about it. But it was the weeping revival, a vast number of people lamented what had taken place over the years, and what they were committed to, and what they'd done, and they'd left it behind. And that would be the secret, if I may use that word, of blessing for any individual congregation or church, even today. Things have to be given up. Things have to be turned away from. Is it possible that it could happen on a wide scale as it happened in Ezra's time? When great numbers of people, thousands of them, took this pledge and took this action to make a complete about turn and live according to the standards of the Lord, could it happen? And we could pray for it to happen. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones saying that there would never be a general revival in Britain, though it's something he looked for and promoted and prayed for. There would never be a revival in Britain until all the confidence was gone out of the churches. The self-confidence, the self-reliance, the trusting in the gimmicks, the concessions, the compromises. Aren't we clever to have adopted this and adopted that and changed this and changed that? And there's no doubt he was absolutely right in that. These things are so important and so precious, and I pray that every single one of us here we live through our Christian lives realising that the standards of God have to be held, have to be kept. Here is the route to instrumentality and to blessing and usefulness. No other way. Ezra was the man of the hour, and uh, he was the one who, once this news was made known, took it before the Lord, and that was used by God as the starting point for the great awakening and the great turning back. That's chapter 9 and of Ezra, and we'll conclude the book in our next study.